Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Spurs in full cry here. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Extra Inch. My name is Wendy, and this is another bonus episode. I'm joined by two people this time, the two hosts from the Boys in the Band podcast. I've got with me Rich Gallagher. Hi, Rich. Hey, Wendy. How you doing? Good, thanks, mate. And Pete Smith. Hi, Pete. How's it going, Chris? All right? Good. Welcome to you both. Um, I think this is going to be a podcast in which we get nostalgic for a particular period of our lives <laughs> at some point. Um, just having a natter off air then, um, I'm already starting to feel like I'm very old. Um, but first off, Rich, you're a Spurs fan and we'll come back yeah. to that later. But do you want to tell us a bit about the Boys in the Band podcasts? Sure, yeah. So um, obviously, I think myself and Pete, we're sort of in our mid-30s and um, we met each other at university and started. Uh, we bonded over music. You know, I was wearing an Arctic Monkeys t-shirt one night and he spotted it from across across a club and uh then bent my ear all all night and uh, from then on we've been going to see bands together and and sh- share experiences like that and uh yeah it was a really vibrant time for music around that in the mid 2000s you know bands like the Arctic Monkeys and the Libertines and and Block Party people like that that came about and it was uh yeah a really exciting time and obviously as you get older you get a bit more nostalgic <laughs> about those times and uh yeah we were just reflecting on it quite recently and we thought you know what there seems to be a bit of a, a thirst for this out there you know why don't we try and you know, start a podcast and, and, and talk to the, the bands that are actually there and get their insights. So who have you had on so far? So so far we uh, we kicked off with Little Man Tate, the Sheffield band that were uh, friends with the Arctic Monkeys. We've had the Future Heads, we've had Frank Turner. Uh, we've just recorded with the Automatic recently, the Subways, uh, the Holloways. Who have, who have I missed, Pete? Anyone? Uh, Art Brute and Art uh, there was Beans on Toast as well, who's a bit more of a folky sort of singer, but. Yeah, there's, there's, um, it's been a nice walk down memory lane for us, isn't it, Rich? It has. And I assume a nice walk down memory lane for some of the bands as well, because not all of them are still going. How, how's, how are you finding that? It must be quite odd interviewing people almost about their past lives. Yeah, it's, you know, it's strange when you chat to these guys. Many of them are sort of similar ages to us who are now doing what you call normal jobs, I guess, but have got this amazing sort of uh, five or ten years to sort of look back on where they were playing these you know great gigs up and down the country or across all around the world they were writing great music which really brought people together and music that people still love today and um yeah it's i think you know i'd I'd say that you know everyone we've spoken to has you know really bought into it and really sort of enjoyed that 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 trip down you know back through the archives and actually 
we were we were speaking to the automatic just before we came on this call with you, Chris. And one of the funny things that came up was we were talking about seeing. I remember seeing them live uh, when we were at Union Brighton. But you know, at the moment, every every now and again, you, on your phone, you get a little time hop on your Facebook or whatever, saying, "Yeah, oh, this is a gig you went to five years ago. Here's a gig you went to ten years ago. Here's a photo from those gigs." But you know, that, that sort of, that's mid-2000s time. You know, maybe there's a digital camera uh, in my mum my and dad's house that I could go and dig out and find some photos from that gig. But, you know, they're all a bit of a hazy memory, really. So it's, it's been good fun sort of talking to these bands about those sort of gigs, those sort of nights, and, and their memories of, you know, crafting those songs that, um, that we all loved. Lovely stuff. So obviously this is, a, this is a football podcast, so we will be talking about some football as well. And Pete, I understand you're a Millwall fan. I am. You said that with a bit of suspicion there. Yeah, we're not going to hold it against you too much. Uh, <laughs> we're, all, we're all part of the Harry Kane fan club, aren't we? That is a very good point. I hadn't, that hadn't even occurred to me, but maybe we'll pick that up later. But you also, you work for Sky Sports as well. That's your day job. I do, yeah. I'm football features editor at Sky Sports. Um, I think, yeah, we could talk about that a little bit as well, if you don't mind. Um, let's let's first talk about um, the kind of interweaving of football and music. That's all right. Um, and I don't think this will... I, I think there'll be a lot of people in the same position as me who grew up around um, Soccer AM and that kind of subculture of, of the end of Britpop and uh, indie music, as it was referred to then, and football being intertwined in on, on national television in a really popular show that was on every week. Soccer AM was not everyone's cup of tea, but for me, it ticked so many boxes and was a staple of my teen years. So you get... Uh, these kind of nerdy football fans but also you'd have a band on there or members of a band on there and it was quite often a band I was into as well so it was just a delight every Saturday morning Uh, and that really helped kind of um, embed the music football culture for, for me personally. When when did you guys get into music? Start with you, Rich. Yeah, I, you know, I got into music sort of you know, as a kid. Parents playing a lot of music in the house, but um, you know, for me, it was really you know when, when Oasis broke out, that was what really my first band of my own that I sort of got into so I was you know 10 or 10 or so when when uh, when definitely maybe came out and uh, yeah one of my first ever ever gigs was was Nebworth you know one of their massive famous gigs and uh, yeah from then on it was you know I think I was about 11 when I went to Nebworth and and so from then on it was you know gigs as often as I can I had an older brother and, and my dad was well into going to gigs so uh, we'd go to as many as we could so yeah. I mean definitely maybe was really one of my first albums one of my albums rather than one that yeah. I borrowed from my dad as well so <laughs> I can definitely empathize with that how about you Pete yeah I was just going to say there Rich will do this from time to time he'll just drop in like a huge gig then he's like yeah I, I was there <laughs> Nebworth yeah I was there it's, it, this guy is he always seems to have the right ticket for the right gig you know? um yeah similar to rich yeah that you know that's sort of those sort of those bands oasis were obviously a huge band for me but but then sort of moving into this era i I sort of felt like you know when you start to go to gigs and things then then there were bands like the libertines who you know had a very similar bond i guess with their fans or or sort of um they created that similar sort of passion in their following as oasis did with their 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 fans in the 90s libertines did that in the noughties and you know, when those bands such as, you know, Strokes were coming around, they were the sort of bands that I was just then coming to an age where, yeah, you know, you can go out to these gigs and you go to share that music with your friends. And, you know, I always say that I think if you ask anyone what their favourite era of music is, it, it tends to be that era when they're, you know, in their teens and late teens and early 20s when you, you I don't know for some reason you form this really strong bond with with music and um, those were the bands that really stood out for me and it's probably I don't know how you feel Chris but 
there's similarities there to football as well I think you know if I think about the time in my life where I was most passionate about Millwall it was probably that same sort of time in those in those those teenage years or an early 20s when you know you just obsessed over that result or that um that latest piece of transfer news or whatever it was um and yeah there's obviously something going on at that time in your life where where you can form these really strong bonds and yeah, now now me and Rich are sort of looking back on those times with these bands. They're very formative years, aren't they? You're kind of, well, I guess as we've already said, you're, you're starting to own your hobbies and interests for the first time. Whereas when you're a bit younger, perhaps you just follow what your, your parents tell you to follow and people at school are kind of doing. When you get into your early teens, mid-teens, you're finding out what makes you tick and the kind of music and other hobbies that get you excited and I, I remember oh my god this is this is embarrassing but I remember when I was about 14 uh, my musical tastes were led by uh, Amazon's you may also like recommendations <laughs> and I, my friends thought I was some kind of um, muso who, who would come up with all these obscure bands I don't know where they thought I got them from uh, but basically it was it was Amazon it was, Amazon was telling me you know if you if you bought this album you you'll also like this one so I turned <laughs> up at my mate's houses with these like the stack of random CDs bands that nobody had heard of and and they would think I was amazing but yeah it was all based on an algorithm I remember I had a, a moment of um, self-awareness when it must have it must have been a lead up to Christmas because um, I used to I used to go through Amazon and put all these CDs on my on my Christmas list. And I remember uh, the band that cropped up was Cosmic Rough Riders. I don't know if you remember them. They were on Alan McGee's um, record label. Was it Pop Creation? Yeah, no, after Creation was it? Yeah, it was the one after Creation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember <laughs> I remember being suddenly very self aware and thinking that can't be a real band name. That is just a <laughs> random word generator. They just plucked three words out of a random word generator. But I bought it and I got it for my Christmas on my Christmas list nonetheless and it was a fantastic record um so yeah that, that's a, a bit of an admission there isn't it um where, where was that going where was I going with that <laughs> but discover it but discovering already. discovering new bands was all part of the fun I think at, at that age as well and um and it was you know it wasn't that easy as well in that in that era because um you know just just as MySpace perhaps started that was, that was the main way into it I found you know going through You'd find a band that you liked on MySpace, and then there was like that little section on the bottom right corner, which was like, is it Connections or something like that? And you just keep going through there, and and then you could like listen to little snippets of bands that you found through there. And yeah, I always remember trying, yeah, trying to be the next, just always trying to find the next good band, just so I could sort of impress my mates, by going, oh yeah, haven't you heard of these guys? They're really good. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were always trawling through forums as well, weren't you around that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was it, wasn't it? MySpace and forums were a really big thing back then. You know, you just you'd go to a gig, and then you next morning you'd you tell these people you'd never met on a forum how uh, how good it was and how cool you were for going to that gig. But uh, yeah, maybe some of the early forerunner for Twitter, I guess. Absolutely. And I remember with MySpace, there were some some bands and musicians that, that played that just right in the early days of MySpace and uh, basically built their whole fan base off the back of it. I, I think Scroobius Pip was one who Definitely, essentially yeah. used MySpace to sell himself and become mainstream. Did a fantastic job of that. Did, yeah. And, and there were loads like that around that time. You know, it was, it was definitely a, an era for DIY as well, wasn't it? Where you, people were recording in their bedrooms and, and using, using computer programs and then uploading it all themselves and just becoming coming all of a sudden selling out you know really significant gigs on the basis of their myspace following absolutely and, and rich um with football and music we had a bit of a chat in, in the week and 
it was quite interesting to hear you talk about um, how the two have been interlinked for you and and how, like, for example, you, you, you'd you gone to a match on Saturday and you'd gone straight to a gig and, and there might be a whole group of people doing exactly the same thing, having made that exact same journey to White Hart Lane and then straight up to, I don't know, Finsbury Park or wherever to, to watch a concert. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, I think like, like Pete said, you know, you, in those formative years, you do you know, develop those obsessions. And I think uh, some people's obsessions last longer and are sort of greater than others. But I think there's definitely a, that crossover, like you say, with that uh, the sort of the, the soccer AM culture of it as well. That There's a certain element of, you know, guitar bands in particular uh, and football fans that, you know, is a real mesh of similar, uh, similar fans. And and so, yeah, you would you, you'd go to a, a, a match in the afternoon and then may well be going off to, you know, Brixton Academy that night. And I think the, the example I was thinking of was um, was Arctic Monkeys at Finsbury Park. But on reflection, that, that must have been in the summer. So it, it probably wouldn't have been on the same day as a, as, a, as a match. But I think when when you're at one of those big open air uh, gigs in in London in the summer, you look around, and you think, well, you know, in a month's time, every, pretty much everybody here will be at a football grounds you know, rather than, in, you know, watching their bands. And there's a real similarity there between uh what i think a lot of fans get out of both experiences and was that the same for you pete you know you 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 were so into football and music at the time that your money would be spent probably going to millwall the weekend but then saving up to go to midweek gigs as well oh absolutely yeah yeah that's that was it yeah um yeah it was it was reading the enemy on a wednesday going to a gig on a friday night and then going to the going to watch the match on a saturday and uh you know what more? What more do you want in your life at that age, really? Um, you know, if you talk about the connections between music and football, I think you know we've mentioned Oasis already on this on this podcast, and I guess the their critics would, you know, or critics of the following of that band would say it's it's you know it's sort of football football yobs and football sort of. Uh, that that sort of perhaps uh, less attractive lad, lad culture. Lad, lad culture. culture. That's, that's, the, that's the, the phrase. That's the phrase I'm searching for. That sort of um, sort of beery lads. But you know, I, I think there's even then if you move into that sort of that noughties more guitar era, uh, that noughties indie era, I think it just carries through. But I think it's you know there's nothing wrong about these you know, boys of our age and or people of our age sharing those two interests. And I think it's just a natural natural connection between those two things that that you get. That, that a lot of people are into when they're that that old. Lad culture is a funny one, isn't it? Because it was a sort of, en masse, it was seen as an anti-intellectual pursuit of just kind of beer and birds and, and drugs and football. I mean... <laughs> You, you probably know Rich because you've listened to the extra inch. That doesn't describe me in the slightest. And, 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 and yet, and yet, I was really into some of that music. But I think um, there, there was a lot more nuance than the, the, to, to the music scene at that time than the media would have you believe. It was very easy to wrap it all up in the in the in the term lad culture when actually you know there there were some bands there who were far from laddish who were doing some really interesting unique things and, and Block Party would certainly be one of those yeah, bands they were at their debut album Silent Alarm was absolutely phenomenal and really quite groundbreaking in in the way it used sound um, I would say also the the drummer from Block Party one of the best live drummers I've ever seen and and his drums. Uh, really come through in the album and kind of drive the album from start to finish, um, which was quite unusual at the time. That didn't, that, as you, as you mentioned, Pete, there was a lot of kind of guitar-based music, but Block Party changed that a little bit, I think, um, sort of post Britpop. 
Uh, so I think there's definitely it's very easy to kind of categorize and, and lump everyone into the same same box. But within that box, there's a lot of nuance. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Lo- loads of nuance and, and loads of subgenres as well, like you say. And I think um, you know, there was definitely around that time as well, like a, an almost uh, an arty scene within the yeah. indie scene as well. You know, the ba- bands like, uh, like Franz Ferdinand and Maximo Park and Futureheads, they had kind of like an art background and and that that was very different. And you know, we've spoken to Billy from the subway. You talk to Billy; he's he's like a proper intellectual. Do you know what I mean? And and uh, yeah, there's a, a definitely much more to these artists. And like you say, I think the tabloids might have uh, suggested at the time. But isn't that true of isn't that true of football fans? You know, uh, you know, if yeah. you if you went you know if you went and did a survey of the people turning up at, at Tottenham for a game, you know, there'd be a wide range of what people were looking to get out of that experience. You know, there'd be people who would you know the the laddie people would just be there for a good time and a few beers with their mates. There'd be people who would perhaps be more intrigued by the stats side of things. There'd be people there who just because they love a certain player, there'd be, you know, there's there's all these different aspects of things that people take out of football. And there's all these different aspects that people take out of music as well. And, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities between the two uh, between the two of them. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the biggest similarities is that kind of that um, the shared experience, isn't it? I think you know, to be at a football match and to be at a gig and to have that, you know, euphoric experience, you know, with a huge number of people. And especially like when you are in you know, the, the perfect sort of environment where you're with your mates in it as well. You know, it really does make for really special experiences that have a massive effect on you. I think that's such a good point. I, I said that in our last podcast, actually, that one of the most important things about football to me is being in amongst something where it feels like everyone's pulling in the same direction. And that was why peak Pochettino years for Spurs were just some of the best, because it yeah. really felt like from top to bottom, everyone wanted the same thing, was go- was getting towards that target and and happy to kind of be along for the journey. And it's the same when you go and see a band, you know, everyone's paid money to go and see this band because they love that band. Uh, so you get a similar experience there as well, I guess. I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe that's slightly different. Um, so Pete, let's talk a little bit about your job as well, because it sounds fascinating. How, how did you get into working for Sky? Yeah, so yeah, I've been at Sky, well, get, probably getting on for 10 years or so, nine to 10 years. Um, studied sports journalism at Brighton, where I'm at Rich, and did various sort of jobs, as you have to do when you're starting out in sports journalism, working for local papers and small magazines and things. And then, yeah, worked my way into Sky Sports, writing for their website. And yeah, it's just evolved from there, really. Um, football Features Editor now, and also produced Sunday Supplement, which uh, I know is a show you like, Chris, which is good to hear. Another uh, viewer, another happy viewer. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, you know, people say, you know, what do you do for work? And you say, work? Well, I get paid to watch football and write about football and talk <laughs> about football. And it's a, you know, it's a pretty good, pretty good job to have. And uh yeah, I'm very aware that it's a job that a lot of people would would enjoy to have as well. So um, yeah, it's it's good fun, and it's it, you know you get to go to nice stadiums like your uh, brand spanking new stadium and uh, and and watch decent football as well. And we have Harry Kane in common. Yeah, yeah. we do, we do, we do. What did, what, did, what did you make of him at Millwall? Um, yeah, so I was. Um, I think I had a season ticket when he was playing. Uh, I'm just trying to remember the exact years, but yeah, I saw I saw a lot of games that season anyway. And I think if any Millwall fan tells you that he was going to go on and become this super goal scorer, 
um, I think they might have been lying because I think well, my my feeling at the time was when his when his load finished was oh, we could get him back here you know I, I, I was I was quite confident we were in the championship at the time we were yeah he he played a big part in us staying up that season I think but there was a feeling that we could kick on and we could convince him to come down and you know I think he's a you know if, if you look at the strengths of Harry Kane he, he's I guess you'd say he's, he's he's got strengths all around he's got an all round ability hasn't he and. I guess that was what we noticed at Millwall. There was no standout trait. You know, sometimes if you get a lone player on who's, you know, lightning quick or, you know, a brilliant, brilliant finisher or something like that, perhaps they stand out more to you. But this was a, a young player coming through who could do a lot of things well, which in the championship was very useful for us because we didn't have many players who could do a lot of things well. But, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's very hard then to, I think it, that type of player is it's hard to judge the trajectory of that player. Mm, and, mm. Um, you know, you know, as I say, I think at the time I, I thought his I thought a potential move to the championship would be would be good for him, and that you know he could could be a good good striker at that level. You know, obviously massively proven wrong, but I think the fact that I think if you look at the Tottenham managers, I know I know Harry and Tim Sherwood both perhaps claim to have you know played a big role in his in his development, but you know, I, I think maybe you know better. Was there really a feeling at Tottenham at the time that he was going to become this, this superstar player for you? Well, I think the the point you've made is a really astute one that he was kind of good at everything but didn't have necessarily any standout attributes. And that is why a lot of people essentially wrote Kane off because they couldn't see anything. They were looking for kind of pace or amazing finisher or something else that would that would make him seem like the next big thing. Um, and because he was just kind of a bit of an all-rounder who was, like you say, good at everything, not outstanding at anything, it was very easy to overlook him. I remember I saw him first for our, for our under-18s when he was 15 and he came on and he played as a number 10 and I liked to look at him instantly. Not that he was kind of aesthetically pleasing because he was quite cumbersome and lumpy as a footballer, but just that he got the he, he got the ball under control quickly and then was decisive with what he was going to do with it. And that was attractive to me. I thought, okay, this he for a boy of fifteen playing up two years, that's impressive. And then the more I saw him, the more I thought oh, he's got something about him. Uh, and I kind of I don't like to big myself up too much, but <laughs> I mean I, went, I, I I kind of uh, went against the grain with Kane and and said I think he's got something I think he's going to be a, a Premier League player and um, on the Fighting Cock podcast which uh, I'm also a, a member of uh, I my, my friends there laughed in my face and said Harry Kane will not will not make it as Spurs and uh, I was proving them wrong a, a year or so later and it was it was joyful but yeah I think what you said is is bang on and I think a lot of people would have written him off for exactly that reason he's just a good player he's just a good footballer he's good at everything um and I would say now that he's he's built his finishing up to a level which is outstanding, but that probably wasn't the case when he was a bit younger, and that is hard work that's, that's got him to that point, and and repetition of, you know, pra- practicing those finishes, um, hard and low bottom corners every time, and uh, that's made him so outstanding. Well, I, I you know just you know, I know you guys watch him regularly, but I was lucky enough uh, last summer I was out covering the Nations League for Sky, and um, before while the teams were warming up, I was. Sort of scooting around the side of the pitch and filming some stuff for our social channels, and I was behind a goal where they were practicing some finishing drills. And you know, if if you've not watched teams warm up, these players don't stick in the top corner every time. There's a there's a lot of shots flying into the crowd. There's a lots of miss hits, but not really from Kane. You know, there was some just incredible the, the clean strike. You know, the, mm. 
you know, past the keeper and the, the sound when it hits hit the net as well. And it's, he, did, he did stand out by quite a margin, I thought, just watching those players. And, it, and I think you can tell a lot when players are, are, are warming up like that or when they're in training because I know the pressure of the moment's not on, but you can see them quite clearly for, for what they've got in terms of their, their ability and their, their talent and how they've honed those skills. And uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a nice sort of close-up view of uh, of his finishing ability yeah i think for, for him as well i think it's a it's a real testament to himself because i think like you say in those early days he wasn't particularly special or anything but now you know he's one of the most special forwards in the league mm. and i think he's, the, the dedication he's shown to hone those skills um and i think it's just a real testament to how how much work he's put in because he's he's fantastic isn't he mm. Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. And um, Rich, you're um, you're Spurs through and through. Tell I us am about your, tell us about your Tottenham journey. Yeah, so um, my, my family weren't particularly into into football. Like my dad wasn't wasn't into football uh, at all. But I said I had our older brother, and I think he might have started sort of shown an interest. Uh, he was four years older than me. So I remember the nine, Italia 90. I would have been uh, sort of five, five at Italia 90. And I do remember it. And I remember seeing, you know, Gaza and Lineker and just being uh, sort of taken on that ride of Italia 90 with them and thinking, yeah, this is, this is cool. I like this. And then lo and behold, somebody told me, oh, yeah, you know, he plays, they play for another team. I was like, oh, what? they play for two teams. And uh, <laughs> and that team happened to be Tottenham. And um, I lived in northwest London, sort of out in, in Harrow. And um, so not, not too far away from, from Spurs. So that kind of worked worked in my favour as well. And yeah, from, from then on I was, you know, Spurs through and through. I remember the ninety one FA Cup final and really enjoying that. And then uh some other less less fond memories beyond there <laughs> for the next few years. But but yeah, became a member of of the club and junior spur as a kid and then member as an adult and on that season ticket waiting list for years and years and years before Wembley finally got my in. And uh, and yeah, so I've been a season ticket holder there since Wembley and I can't wait to get back there. <laughs> and how do you feel about the the way we are now? Uh, obviously, it was, it was painful parting with Pochettino. And then for some, it was painful hiring Mourinho. But where do you stand on that? Yeah, you sort of you definitely go through the journey of Dax. Um, yeah, Pochettino's departure was painful, and it was it was devastating on the night. You know, I remember feeling like it was a you know, a real painful breakup and that sort of thing. And uh, 
And when the rumours of Mourinho came about, I was like, oh, no, please not Mourinho, please no. And, um, and then once it was all confirmed, you know, you, you try and justify it, don't you? You think, well, you know, maybe it does make sense. Maybe, you know, what, what this squad needs is trophies. You know, we want to keep these players and we want to keep them happy. And the way to do that is to get them to win trophies. And Mourinho wins trophies. So I kind of came around to the idea and it obviously started quite well. You know, we, he had a good record initially. Um, and then... It's not quite panned out that way, sort of heading up to to the break in play. I think it's um, been a bit unfortunate with in, in, injuries and things, but I think my most disappointing thing with Mourinho so far is that when it's come down to those crunch moments, he's not quite showed that that winning mentality that he's famous for. You know, like when you know, the Leipzig uh, tie and um, and the FA Cup tie, you know, you think Mourinho would get his teams through those. And, you know, when we did quite well for a period and we went into the Chelsea game, whereas if, if we beat Chelsea, we would have gone above them. And that would have been, you know, unthinkable when he first uh, first joined. But we stumbled. And it just feels like a little bit of a, just a, not quite got far enough with it yet. But... Uh, I think, you know, he is a winner. I really hope that we aren't that, that one club on his CV that he doesn't win a trophy with. Um, so I think with a fit squad, you know, once we've got Kane and Son back uh, fit and firing, I'm hoping that he can work his magic, you know, get all the squad on board. Bit of dealings in the transfer market are going to be tricky, of course. But, mm. you know, I think as a Spurs fan, you know, you've got to be optimistic. <laughs> so I will remain that. We've we spent our lives being optimistic, haven't yeah. we? <laughs> Pete, what are your perceptions of um, Spurs under Mourinho? Well, I was I was thinking um, before we come on this podcast, I was thinking back to the piece I wrote when he was appointed, and it felt to me that it was a big gamble. It was a big gamble from both sides, really, because I feel like Daniel Levy. Yeah, obviously you've mentioned it already a couple of times. The love that the Spurs fans, or many Spurs fans, have for Pochettino and what he was doing, and he obviously it was a big call to walk uh, to basically sack Pochettino, and it was a big call to appoint Mourinho, a manager who you know is not renowned for playing football. Uh, the Tottenham way, if you could say, you know, it's not playing that attractive football that Tottenham are, are known for. Um, but it's a big gamble for Mourinho as well in terms of what's gone on in his recent appointments. He needs to get this one right. You know, I don't think he can really, you know, Rich says he hopes this isn't the club where Mourinho doesn't win a trophy. And if it is a club where he doesn't win a trophy, where does Mourinho turn to then? Because I don't know, do the do the do the doors at the other big clubs around Europe will they still be open for Mourinho if if he can't find success at Tottenham? And then you get to a point where they clearly, but you know, as, as well as Mourinho tried to talk it down in various press conferences very early on anyway, before he started moaning about injuries and the lack of options he had in his squad. He was, you know, saying that a lack of spending from, you know, spending wasn't going to be a big problem for him, that he walked in and Spurs have got a you know, great squad and, he, you know, there's lots of potential for him to take them on. But we all know that He's a manager who spends lots of money at all of his clubs. Uh, he spent loads of money at Chelsea both times around. He spent loads of money at Manchester United. And as we know, Daniel Levy doesn't like spending money. So <laughs> it, it feels it feels an odd marriage for me. And I feel I was, I was getting quite frustrated with what Mourinho was saying in the press um, towards towards the end of the season, well, before we stopped the season. Um, it, it felt to me like he was writing the season off very quickly. And yes, of course, he wanted to get... You know, a full pre-season, and yes, he wanted to have players like Kane and Sung and 
Bergwijn fit and things like that. But, you know, you spoke earlier about, you know, or we spoke earlier about the joy of a shared experience, the joy of going to a football match on a Saturday. And, you know, I just feel if you're a Tottenham fan turning up to a game when you know that your manager has almost openly said, we're just going to play out the last few games of this season. We're going to, you know, there's there's nothing that we can really achieve in this season because we've got so many issues, because we've got this. That's not how you want to spend your Saturday afternoon watching a team like that. I think you want to, you know, so what's the alternative? Well, show us a great young player. Why don't you show us, you know, some experiment um, experiment with the lineup or something like that? It's, it's it, it yeah it just got to me a little bit and I and funny enough the the final Tottenham piece I wrote before was after the Leipzig game where I was sort of talking up how important the Manchester United game which was supposed to follow on the Sunday how that was almost one game to save the season and it really felt to me like yeah if 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 Tottenham didn't go and beat Man United on that Sunday you just have this really weird period of sort of two or three months where you're just just killing time until the summer until some players are fit until you know could you spend some money when we know that this is a club that doesn't spend a lot of money? And yeah, I I think there's, there's a lot, I think um, there's a lot of responsibility on managers and clubs in general to yes, plan for the long term. Yes. um, Plan for success in the future, but also remember that, you know, people like yourselves go to these games looking to be entertained, looking to have a form of escapism. And, you know, we've got to try and find some positives in, in football, you know, even if, yeah, your best striker's out injured. Yeah, even if you're going to struggle to make the Champions League spots this season. And, um, yeah, that was just my my feeling towards it. And, you know, I, I still I still think Jose Mourinho's got, got what it takes to deliver success at the club. I still think he, I think uh, he has a lot of the attributes that were perhaps needed to add or needed adding to that. Uh, squad under Pochettino, that that sort of cutting edge, that winning edge. But um, yeah, I wasn't yeah I wasn't overly uh, excited about the way he was going about it at the time. But of course, <laughs> you know, I was saying to Rich just before he came on, I, I had to go and remind myself that oh yeah, Lloris made a couple of mistakes in that Leipzig game. Oh yeah, that was the score because it just feels so long ago now, and it almost feels to me like when we do restart football. Well, most people will be starting with a clean slate with me because I, I can't really remember most of what happened before. So. <laughs> But um, we'll see what happens. And also we'll obviously see how the coronavirus pandemic has transformed the transfer market and things like that, because, you know, Harry Kane's future was a was a topic at, at the start of this lockdown. And you, I know Daniel Levy won't won't sell him cheaply, but how many clubs will pay huge fees for players after this uh, pandemic? Um, so what what there's obviously question marks around his future. How do Tottenham invest in new players when they've obviously got uh, they have had huge spending on the stadium? So. There's lots of question marks. I think um, Jamie Carragher made a good point on Sky Sports that he thought that when Pochettino was in charge, you were perhaps one or two players away from really challenging for silverware and obviously getting to Champions League final, but challenging regularly at the top end of the table. And he he thought that the the style shift and the shift to the team that you had to be under Mourinho required a lot more players to be brought in. And I thought that was... That was a really interesting point, and as as I said, I think the the changes that we'll see in the transfer market may make it difficult to to make those changes that that might need be needed under Mourinho. It's really interesting to hear the views of um, someone who's kind of got an outsider's perspective. I, I think you make a lot of good points there, Pete. I think um, there's definitely an element of defeatism from Mourinho towards the end of the season, which is disappointing in some ways. And like you say, you know, why not Why not promote a young player or, or try something tactically different when things are not going well? There, all, there were also a lot of mitigating factors. I mean, the injuries that ripped through the, the first team were pretty severe. And I think even Pochettino would have struggled uh, had he been in charge with those injuries. 
hitting in the way they did. Um, I also take issue a little bit with Carragher's point. I think at peak Pochettino, I absolutely agree that we were one or two players away from sustained title challenges. But by the end, I feel like he just didn't turn over the squad enough. And I, and I appreciate that not everyone thinks that's Pochettino's fault. A lot of people think it's Daniel Levy's fault. But for me, Pochettino knew the constraints that he was working within. He knew what Levy was willing to spend or not spend. And there were perhaps other ways of going about it, such as targeting championship, outstanding championship players or, or targeting younger players, younger British players and loaning them back for a year or six months like we did with Delhi. Um, and, and there were perhaps some things that Pochettino could have done. But So I would disagree with Carragher in the sense that by the end of Pochettino's reign, I, I felt like we were as far away from sustained type of challenges as we were at the start. Um, but yeah, there, there were a couple of years there where we were, we were so close. And that's, that's the saddest thing about it. What do you think, Rich? Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that we were so close, we were literally on the cusp and just those one or two extra players at that time, you know, could have made all the difference. And I think, um, I think you're right that the squad, you know, really did suffer from those couple of transfer windows or how, two or three transfer windows without any incomings. And, and yeah, by the end of Pochettino's reign, that was one of the, the biggest issues. Um, I also think like with Jose, like um, he does, it always seems to be some sort of ulterior motive, you know, through, mm-hmm. through, through Jose's actions and, you know, whether he's being negative because that's genuinely how he feels or because that's how he wants to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mm-hmm. sometimes debate with, uh, debate about, but I agree that it doesn't help. And, and certainly as, as fans, it, it annoys us um, yeah. and it doesn't make us feel good. But generally there will be some reason behind it. He's trying to lower expectation or to make, get a message to the board or something. And, um, and I think that's generally how, how, he, how he acts. And, and while it might not be what we want to hear sometimes, there's usually a, a method to his madness. That's a really good point. He's not an idiot, is he? He's a, yeah. he's a very smart man. Um, I appreciate that you two have both been podcasting today for a long time, so you've probably got podcast fatigue. Um, but just before I let you go, there's a couple of things I want to ask you. Um, firstly, between you, um, could you sort of give your, your favourite albums from the, the era that you're, you're podcasting on, so that sort of mid, mid-noughties era? Era. Rich, what would what what would uh, be your sort of top top two three albums from that era? Oh, that's that's that's, that's tough. Wendy, cheers for the uh, notice on that one. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> um, you know, you know, it does tend to come back to some similar bands um, that we've mentioned already. But you know, that Arctic Monkeys debut album was was really really important. I think in terms of how it came about and how. Uh, as fans, they, that they shared all their music with their fans before the album came out. So you knew the album already. You'd, you'd got them all on MP3 already, even if they were rough demos or whatever. Mm. Um, but everybody really, certainly, you know, people like us who were going to see, see them live and following them at that time, you know, really identified with their, their music and their lyrics. And it was so of the moment. Um, that that album really sort of sticks out as a, a real, you know, a marker in time. You know, it really does, uh, I think, uh, signpost that era quite well, uh, perfectly, in fact. Um, other albums like Libertines, were, were, as, as we've mentioned, both of those albums were really, really important, uh, brilliant albums. Um, Pete, do you want to shift on one or two while I try and think of another one? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah, I was just, you know... Yeah, there are obvious ones like like that where we can pick out. And um, me and Rich are obviously big Jamie T fans again, who did did music a bit differently um, mm. to some of those guitar bands. Um, but I, 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 Good Shoes, I don't know if you you know them, Chris. Good Shoes, they were a really good yeah, band. Yeah, I remember I think, them. Yeah, yeah. So their debut, Think Before You Speak. You know, every song on that album was pretty much well two and a half minutes, and it was yeah, it was you know they were they were singing songs about you know 
you know, it, it wasn't, you know, really sort of very scientific stuff they were singing about, but it was it was good, fun music. It was really catchy tunes. And yeah, that, that sort of summed up the, the, the best bits of that scene for me, really, was, you know, the, these young guys coming out, picking up guitars with their mates and just producing these this almost pop songs basically yeah two minute pop songs you're bang on you're bang on yeah that's a really good show i think they're one of those bands that at the time i absolutely loved and i I saw them live a couple of times and i I loved listening to that album i suspect that if i went back to it now uh i don't think it would necessarily translate well i think i'd get sort of nostalgic like happy nostalgic feeling Mm. listening to it but I, i don't think i'd think it was a great record now um and and for me that kind of in some ways defines that era i don't think there were many kind of classic albums but it was at the time it felt so good it felt so energetic and a really happy place to be yeah yeah i think i think it's yeah i think you're you know i think it's an era that that does get tired with that sometimes where people say you know there was a glut of guitar bands and you know was there any of it actually very good but you know when you when you were in that moment when you were going to these gigs and when you were these songs were coming out you, you know again going back to what we said at the start perhaps it was the age we were at and the connection we were feeling with music at mm. the time but it did feel really important and it did feel really special and uh and it, yeah it's uh it's a, a good time to look back on with these bands yeah definitely i think uh yeah i think jamie t is definitely another one that me and pete really connected over um and another band um was, was the maccabees and you know i think their debut album you know, still stands up as one of my favourites of, of all time, and and their subsequent albums as well. You know, they're one of the sort of exceptions to the rule of that that era that you know really did continue and evolve and do some really interesting things. And you know, their, their final album and their final shows were you know absolutely incredible. And uh, and that's all on the back of, of their debut, which was like right in the heart of that indie scene. It was actually quite different to how they ended up, but uh, but yeah, lo- love them all, love them both both ends of their careers uh, equally. Nice. And and the final thing, uh, I'm interested in hearing how you're how you're both dealing with lockdown so what have your experiences been like Pete has it has it been just kind of working from home and and cracking on with it yeah working from home yeah we did lots of uh player of the season lots of team of the season stuff early on and um I guess yeah there were there was a you know opportunity at that point to well we we didn't know how long we were going to be without football for and um Mm. There was a time then where you know we could look back on this, on almost a complete season, and um, most of the narratives were quite set, so we could discuss those. But as obviously as it's evolved, the the, the news story and the health and safety around the return has obviously been a big focus um, for our coverage at Sky. And um, that you know I don't know if you've seen the football show um, each morning on Sky Sports News where our top pundits are on and discussing these issues, but. We're getting a mix, I think, really, and that's a lot of football fans, really, a mix of we're hearing a lot about the safety around return, but also taking a bit of time to get a bit nostalgic. You know, there's, there's quite a bit of, you know, on this day sort of things. And, you know, it's, it's maybe a good time, perhaps, just for us all while we're just sat home to sort of look back on those those shared memories, as, as we've talked about before. And, you know, pay, you know in, the, in the hustle and bustle of the season, we don't really have a lot of time to look back on, um, you know, the, the, the great performances of the past. And uh, it's been a nice opportunity to do that actually nice and how about you rich how are you dealing with this yeah well i'm um, i'm a primary school teacher so uh, it's been an interesting time uh, from my perspective as well i've been in school some of the time with the the key worker children sort of delivering uh, lessons for sort of mixed year groups and you know really trying to encourage social distancing with the young ones is really tra- really tricky but uh, we've been doing our best and so i've been balancing that with then you know preparing remote learning for the other year groups uh, that, that i'm not in contact with and and uh, doing home learning with my own children as well so 
uh, I think with with those elements and, and me and Pete doing the podcast, I feel like I've never been busier. <laughs> Mate, I, I've got so much admiration for what you're doing at the moment. It must be so difficult and completely new skills, I imagine, as yeah. well. Moving some of the lessons online, it's a to- it's a different job, basically, isn't it? You're used it to is. being in the classroom. That's really yeah. tough. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, throwing I'm, yourself I'm, into a lion's den of being, you know, in the classroom still teaching key workers children when it's dangerous for you to be there as well. It's just amazing. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that you just... You do you're kind of expected to do it and you, you just kind of get on with it and try not to panic and worry about it too much and uh, and just do your best to, you know to, to follow the guidance really and to do what you can but uh, I think you know that you know the whole element of, of the economy and businesses and I include you know the, the schools and and the, the football season in this in terms of people getting back to their jobs and people being comfortable with it and being confident in the procedures that are in place and the protection that's there it's a uh, it's a real big ask, I think, for, for businesses to put on to whatever their employ- whoever their employees are to just expect them to say, right, this is what we're doing and you have to be here. I think it's a really interesting time. It's a really uh, tough ask for, 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 for some industries more than others. Well, there's, there's, a, there's one thing which is doing the risk assessments and planning out how it's going to work. And there's another thing which is actually turning up and doing it and, yeah. you know, fuck the daily mail frankly because the the pressure that they're putting on teachers at the moment and the implications that that teachers uh, are somehow being stopped from being heroic by their unions when the unions are trying to protect people you know who are trying to do the best thing for for the children of this nation i think it's disgusting and people just need to be human about it frankly absolutely and and i think that's the thing as well with you know there's been a lot of debate within within football as well about you know they are humans as well and you know i know troy dean's been very vocal recently and danny rose as well of course um, and you know, people do have to be considered humans. And you know, ev- as I say, everybody in all industries need to be have that opportunity to feel as comfortable as they can. And if they want to say no, then they should be w- well within their rights. Still, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you're quite right. Um, if, if people are interested in hearing more about uh, Project Restart, I did a podcast with Alex Benham, who's a researcher, uh, PhD candidate at University of Oxford, Oxford University, and he he's amazingly articulate and and well-researched and all of this. And we spoke about the Mumbai plague and Spanish flu and government responses to these pandemics. It's really, really interesting. So I urge you to go back and listen to the last podcast. It was it was fascinating. Yeah, um, I, I listened to that already, Wendy. It's you know, real, in, real amazing insight and uh, does make you think, you know, why? Why are we rushing back so quickly? Absolutely. And that's from someone who spends his life researching this stuff. Um, boys, wh- where can people find out more about your podcast? If, they're, if, if, if hearing the name Good Shoes has made them think, right, I need to go back and hear about some of these bands again. Wh- wh- where's the best place for them to find out more? Well, you can find us wherever you get your, your podcast from. Just search for Boys in the Band podcast. Um, we're on Twitter uh, at the BITB pod. I think I've got those those letters yeah. in the right order. <laughs> uh, and Or just find us on uh, Boys in the Band pod on Instagram and Facebook. Just and drop us a message. Let us know what bands you're into, what music you liked back then. And uh, we'll do our best to hunt down those bands and chat to them. Lovely stuff. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you both. A trip down memory lane. Back to, I feel I feel like I'm 20 again, and I'm going to go and listen to some good shoes right now. <laughs> good man. Take care, guys. Wendy, it's been a, been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having us on. And um, yeah, it's a bit surreal for me talking to you in real life rather than just listening to you down the, <laughs> down the earphones. So um, yeah, lo- love your work on the Extra Inch and, and all the guys at the Fighting Cock as well. So uh, yeah, cheers, cheers for having us on. Thank you, boys. Cheers. You've been listening to the Extra Inch. 
Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Barney for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindner for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davey Shambles and his SoundCloud, D. Lindner. Do check him out. He's great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.co.uk and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.